You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Well, I'm excited to introduce our guest for today. It is Reverend Dr. Grace Jisung Kim, who has received her PhD from the University of Toronto and is professor of theology at Earlham School of Religion. She's the author or editor of a whole bunch of books, about 20 books, um, most recently Hope and Disarray, as well as Keeping Hope Alive, Reimagining Spirit and Intersectional Theology. Um, she's written for a whole range of resources like Baptist News Global, Sojourners, Faith and Leadership, Wabash Center, um, and has published in Time, The Huffington Post, Christian Century, U.S. Catholic Magazine, and The Nation. And she's the host of, if you didn't know, a new uh, podcast, a Madang podcast, which is hosted by the Christian Century and is ordained an ordained Presbyterian Church USA minister. Um, and so you can find more of her writing and work on her blog. Um, and so we're just really, really grateful to have you here with us on Inverse Podcast. Grace, welcome to uh, the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's so exciting. I know uh, before we had conversations, maybe two years ago, about coming on your podcast or something like that. I don't know, Jared right. was yeah. yeah, messaging me and then it never happened. And then you know, time flies. So it's wonderful to be here and so wonderful to see the other uh, listeners here with us today. So thank you so much for having me. Well, it's that, that hope of the, the now and not yet, which kind of is a perfect segue <laughs> into the book, right? Um, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> your new book on hope, and you've written a book on hope, but you also edited uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson's book on hope. Yeah. Um, so uh-huh. during this pandemic and um, uh, before, you've been meditating on hope for quite some time. And <laughs> well, I was we- meditating on it, not thinking that there'll be a pandemic ahead of us. <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, the pandemic in itself um, provides um, the context for so much of this conversation, as does our ecological crisis, as does people's increasing awareness of um, white supremacy and colonisation. Um, hope in some theological circles has been a bit of a dirty word. Um, I, I think of um, Miguel de Torres' um, work embracing hopelessness. Would you talk to us a little about um, this particular project and uh, why you're leaning into what some people are leaning away from? Yeah, um, thank you so much. Um, so I actually have a copy of the book if people are interested. It's a nice, bright cover for me. Um, Hope and Disarray, I think, you know, this particular book, you know, I've written many academic books, but then I'm just writing less and less academic books. I feel uh, maybe I should just write for the more general public. So this is one of those books for the general public. It's, it's a collection of 28 uh, meditations. Um, uh, you know, each beginning with a biblical passage, and then each one deals with a certain topic, and it ends with questions. So you can use it as your own devotional book or a Bible study group or some adult study group um, and read it together. But I thought, you know, when I was putting it together, everything, uh, particularly for me as an immigrant, you know, I was born in Korea, and then our family immigrated to Canada um, in 1975. And then so I actually did my kindergarten, all the way up to my PhD in Canada. And then once I finished, I left and I'm now an immigrant here in the US. 
And I think um, during my difficulties, you know, experiencing either racism or sexism um, in the larger society or in the church, um, there's, you know, there's moments of should I leave the church or moments of how am I going to survive? And when I reflect on those uh, times in my life, I think it is really hope that kept me going. So even though there are some theologians are, you know, like Miguel de la Torah, for me, it's so important that we kind of cling on to hope and embrace hope because, you know, at some days there's nothing left for us. And then, so when I was finishing up this book, I realized um, Reverend Jackson's book was coming out and, you know, his kind of motto is keeping, keep hope alive. alive and so right. the book, mm-hmm. yeah, we, we call, uh, we had a different name. I think um, it was called a witness and then the publisher changed it to keeping hope alive. And then I said, are you sure that's an okay title? And um, he says, yes. So I'm really glad that we changed it to keeping hope alive because that book that I edited, you know, with Reverend Jackson, it is all about when there is nothing else to cling on to, we mm-hmm. cling on to the hope that we find in God. And there's enough biblical passages in scripture. You know, one of the critiques that uh, some of us theologians get, and maybe Drew, you get it too, is, um, you know, I've been criticized, oh, theologians, you just make everything up. You know, church historians <laughs> have historical documents, biblical scholars look at the Bible, and the new theologians have nothing. You just make everything up. But, you know, many of us actually uh, are uh, relying on scripture and uh, doctrinal documents and et cetera, church doctrines and so forth. So it's not just we make everything up. I think much of my theology is biblically based. And so there's enough passages in scripture that references how we are to cling to hope. And, you know, this book, um, the foreword was written by Mitri uh, Rahab and the afterword by Elizabeth Hensi Hasty, who teaches mm. here in the U.S. But, you know, both of them are reflecting on hope. And for me, I, I write in the introduction that hope is like an anchor. So um, when we look at the early Christians, I think most of us are familiar with the fish symbol so when christians were persecuted you know they would draw the sign of the fish and they understood who was a christian by looking at that sign Um, but we sometimes have forgotten that the other sign that the early christians used was the anchor Mm. you know um, and scripture talks about um, hope as anchor too and that we are anchored in christ and so the early christians used the fish symbol and the anchor symbol to really show people that they were christians uh, especially during persecution so for me um, you know i do write about hope and how hope becomes an anchor um, and the anchor is anchored in Christ. So when, you know, when storms come and we know many storms are here, here in the U S and around the world. And I know in Australia too, and Canada, you know, so many storms that come um, our way. And I think during these hard times and during these storms, we can anchor ourselves in Christ. So that's the kind of like the imagery that I have, this biblical understanding. And that was the basis of um, my book, Hope and Disarray. Oh, that's beautiful. That's, that's, thank you. I can imagine everyone right now is just like, we need a book like this right now, right? Um, <laughs> in these moments in particular, not that hope is always needed, but um, especially right now. Um, 
uh, we need something to hold on to and to keep us afloat. So, but, but I'm interested in, so, you know, you were teasing about how we get teased as theologians, right? About yeah. not engaging the Bible, which, you know, <laughs> all theologians get that, especially even from our own colleagues, right? They like to tease yeah. us probably more than anybody else. It's the biblical scholars and stuff like to tease us. But, um, yeah. But, but in light of that, I'm curious, um, what passage, we always like to ask our guests to ground our conversation in a biblical text. So what, what passage would you like to read that has the potential to turn our world upside down and help us think liberatively? Um, do you have a passage that you'd like to read for us? Um, I have one, but I don't know if it's going to turn the world upside down. <laughs> it's in Hebrews because I was thinking about hope. So the passage that comes to my mind is Hebrews um, 6.19, which says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters in your inner sanctuary behind the curtain. So that one, uh, you know, because for me, you know, I don't know about the listeners today. There's a lot of hopelessness around me. Uh, especially as an Asian American living here in the U.S. with all this anti-Asian hate yeah. and hate crimes committed against us and just racism in general, xenophobia, discrimination and marginalization of uh, you know, people of color and especially women of color. So in these kind of um, times where there is so much hopelessness around us and you know, with the pandemic, um, I know we're hoping that the pandemic will end, but you just don't know the uh, variants that are coming. Um, I think we really need to rely on Christ and this hope becomes an anchor for our soul. So I, I'm, I hope that the listeners will appreciate this biblical passage. Another passage that has been very helpful for me um, as a woman of color theologian is um, Joel uh, 3.28. Or is it Joel 2.28? The spirit of God is poured upon all people. Oh, yeah, and that has gosh. given me a lot of hope too, because, you know, in our wider society, there is so much racism um, that is hurting people, that is killing people. Um, and so, you know, I was at another podcast the other day and they asked me, how do we overcome this? And, you know, I just think, we are all created in God's image. So each one of us, old and young, uh, tall or short, black hair or no hair, we're all created in the image of God. And if we can see God in each other, then we can overcome all of this problem. And so when we think about Joel's passage, the spirit of God is poured upon all people. That just reminds us that we are all created in the image of God, we are all God's children. So as you mentioned in my introduction, I'm an ordained Presbyterian minister, but I'm teaching at a Quaker school, mm. um, uh, where am I? Um, Earlham School of Religion. I'm on sabbatical, so I can't think properly. So I'm at you've Earlham got to School of Religion. disconnect appropriately That's when right. you're on sabbatical. Yeah. There's a million of email, millions of email, I just delete everything. So uh, Earlham School of Religion, so Quakers have a saying, they say, that of God in everyone. Mm -hmm. And I really love that saying. Mm -hmm. I think if we can understand and realize that of God in everyone, that just ties in with the Joel passage that the spirit of God is on, upon all people. And mm -hmm. I would like to extend 
um, the Quaker saying to say, you know, that of God in all living things, you know, mm-hmm. God's spirit dwells everywhere. It's not excluded. It's not just in me or just in the listeners today. It's everywhere. God's presence. You know, God is this infinite being and we're these finite beings. You know, my husband's a math professor and I can never understand the concept of infinity or what it means, but we can, as human beings, we'll never be able to understand it. So I think we need to kind of open up our minds, open up our hearts and recognize that the spirit dwells in all living things. God's presence is here. And I think understanding that and understanding this Hebrew passage about a hope as an anchor may be able to turn the world upside down. Maybe, I don't know, but uh, maybe it may for our listeners today um, who are clinging on to something because we are living in this world that's in disarray. There are so many problems that we see. We have a new president here in the U.S., but still things are slow to change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, racism is not eliminated. Sexism isn't eliminated. And climate change is still around us. So my book, you know, there's 28 entries. And I do touch on different topics like Uh, climate injustice that's happening, uh, Mm. racial discrimination, how we understand beauty, Mm. uh, the westernization of beauty. And so the premise for me, uh, when we think about hope, you know, some people think um, hope is just this optimistic way of thinking. That's not what hope is. Hope is Mm -hmm. being grounded in Christ. And that hope actually leads us to work for justice. It's not just this fuzzy, warm feeling that we get, oh, you know, God has given me hope. But the hope leads us to do some action. And so it's great to see a lot of you um, activists out there um, doing things and, and marching with your feet and your legs to change Um, the wrongs in our society. So that's kind of what I want to convey in the book, that it's not just this warm, fuzzy feeling that we have, but it really leads us to, to, to work for change to do social justice. You know, I grew up in a very conservative Korean Presbyterian church. And I think, in general, immigrant churches in North America are very, very conservative. And so in that conservative setting for me as a child and as a teenager, we were taught just personal piety is important and don't don't think about anything else as long as you pray about it, everything will be okay. But if we really look at scripture, yes, personal piety is important. But the context that we find ourselves in So the context right now, you know, there's so much brokenness around us, so many people suffering because of these unjust laws, you know, discrimination against uh, particularly black women and black men who are imprisoned in such high rates here in the U.S., when we think about these um, injustices, you know, God cared about the situation that we find ourselves in. God cares about the context that we are in. Otherwise, why would God take the Israelites out of Egypt when they were enslaved there? It's because God cared about these people. God cares about us. And so we need to work with God, asking God to help us to change all these injustices that we have. So even in my 
book, Hope and Disarray, the questions I raise is what can we do as individuals? What can we do as a group? What can we do as a country? You know, especially when it comes to climate injustice, countries, the whole country has to be on board to yeah. do something, to change policies, to, to lower the carbon uh, emissions, etc. So, you know, that's kind of what I'm wishing for when people read the book and engage with the book. Grace, um, I so appreciate that. Uh, I mean, you've written uh, these brilliant texts about uh, the other, about intersectional theology, um, uh, about um, uh, Korean-American um, Christology. And here you have a text where um, you're seeking to speak to people's, um, we'll use the word piety, but um, personal um, uh, devotion in such a way that sends them out into action. Um, uh, so it's not just um, your friend, uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson, that's quoted in this book, but Taylor Swift. Um, uh, yes. I'm, I'm really interested um, in terms of what were those first memories you have of encountering the Bible and uh, were they engaging um, the, the social, um, the cultural, um, the arts, like um, your work is now? Um, do you have early memories of, of first encountering the Bible? Um, so, uh, as I uh, shared earlier, we're an immigrant family, so we were never Christians in Korea. So um, this is the 1970s. You know, Christianity was um, kind of spreading, but it really didn't take off until the 1980s in Korea. So that was before our immigration. So we immigrated in 1975. I was young, and we lived in this apartment building. There must have been 10 other families. And actually, um, just to plug, uh, my new book, Invisible, is coming out this fall. Mm -hmm. And I do share about this story, too. So that's going to be in my book. Um, and then, actually, I was going over the copy edits this week, and I realized I might have shared too much of my life because I'm cringing now. I thought, no, because some of them are so personal and I feel like mm. I shouldn't have shared, but now it's like, it's going to be out, out there. there. It's out there. So, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm really a little bit scared because I've always shared parts of my life, but this is a little bit more than I have, but I'm not going to get into that tonight. But uh, when I was living in this apartment, we'd love to have about, you back to get into it another time. Greg. Yeah. That invisible. <laughs> yeah. Cause I am. I'm a little scared that I, because the the prop, the thing with theology is we come to know God through our personal experiences, mm -hmm. through our personal life. So for the last two thousand years, we have had these white male European uh, theologians telling us who God is, and um, you know Drew's nodding with me because he's in agreement, and. We had to think that they weren't speaking in some particular context. It was like, okay, that's it. And they're just speaking out of this kind of vacuum. But if we read, we know that they were speaking in their own particular context. Anselm certainly was, and so was mm -hmm. Augustine. He was talking about his own mm -hmm. simple problems. And you see it over and over again. But when, you know, in the last 50, 60 years with liberation theologians and with Black theologians, uh, Latina, Asian American, and when we talk about our own 
experiences, they pushed us away and said, oh, you know, that's just some storytelling or it's some memoir theology, which isn't important. But we really come to know God through our personal experiences, through our personal lives. And that's what theologians have been doing for the last 2000 years when we read mm. over it very carefully. So my thing is, you know, biography is theology and theology that's is right. biography. Amen. So that's why I do write a lot about my own stories. But I feel like this new book I, is the one I wrote the most. And I'm a little scared now because I feel like I'm sharing a bit too much. I've always set myself boundaries, but I think I got a little carried away during the pandemic when I was writing this book, Invisible. <laughs> so I got a little carried away with that. Anyway, um, going back to your question, now I can't, I can't remember what your question was. In, in terms of early memories when it comes to... Oh, early memories. So, yeah. yeah. So, I was in that apartment building and there were about 10 other families, Korean immigrant families. So, it was in a really uh, rundown place um, in London, Ontario. Cockroaches galore in the building. Um, it's very... Like, the area was very poor. But one of the families there... Um, um, asked me and my sister if we wanted to go to church and my parents had no problem. So we started going to church. Uh, I think I was about seven or eight years old. And then my parents came later. But so it was kind of much later uh, in my childhood. But the verse that sticks out to me the most is John three sixteen: for God to love the world. So why that sticks out the most is, so I, we went to this Korean Presbyterian church. And then a year later, when my parents started to come to church, they decided to drive me and my sister to all these other churches. So on Sunday morning, we went to some Baptist Sunday school. And then Sunday evening, you know, back then in the 70s and 80s, it was a Sunday evening service. I think in Australia, you still have them because when I was in Australia last year, or the year before, I spoke at one of the Sunday evening services which I was so glad to because I thought everybody got rid of them. But anyway, I'm so glad that some churches in Australia have the Sunday evening service. So Sunday evening, we went to some other small little Baptist church. And then on Friday nights, we went to some Missionary Alliance church. And then some Saturdays, we may have gone somewhere. So we went to multiple churches. But the Sunday evening church at this Baptist church, there was this old minister and so, you know, we were all in the sanctuary and we would sing for like 30 minutes, all these hymns. But the one that sticks out, the song that we sang a lot was Jesus Loves Me, um, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So. And he would sing it with, the key, I don't know, I was young. He looked like he was about 70, but he may not have been that old. But he kind of belted that song out with so much energy. So that... And the John 3.16 doing the Bible swords in all these different churches, all these contests that, you know, I, I had this competitive side of me. So I'm like memorizing these passages. So those are kind of the early memories of, of reading the scripture and memorizing the scripture. And it was John 3.16 that kind of was instilled in me. And I think maybe that was a very Baptist thing, but that is kind of my earliest kind of memory of scripture. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I, I definitely can resonate with so many of those stories. Certainly, I grew up in a Black church that at least in my early years, we were still doing Sunday evening services. So I certainly know <laughs> all about that. Um, now, we weren't bouncing from, we weren't visiting so many churches, but I was in 
the same church about like four times a, during the week when I think yeah. I was young. <laughs> well, the Probably reason in- why, yeah, that, yeah, I, but that happened later in my life. But the reason why when we were young, my dad did that was for him, he thought it was all these free English classes because, you know, we couldn't <laughs> speak English. So he would just drop <laughs> us off at these churches and we had, we had to speak English at that time. So, you know, and then, but in my teenage years, when my dad wasn't forcing us to go to these churches and I went to the Korean church about four or five times a week. So Drew, yes, I was the same with you, you know, going to the same same church. All kinds of church. So many times a week. Yeah. And all the Bible verses and competitiveness. I think we had some of those same kind of games and stuff. So, (laughs) but I'm curious outside of like that kind of like, I'm curious how at those early years, would you say that how you encountered the scriptures and how it was presented and articulated and interpreted that you were experiencing it as something liberative or something as oppressive or something in between? Like, how would you describe your encounter with the Bible at that time? Oh, I think in my childhood and teenage, um, it was very oppressive. (laughs) Um, it was like some scary book that I had to follow. And that was how it was preached to me, how it was taught in Sunday school. It was all these rules I had to obey. So it was terrifying book. And I had, um, you know, my dad picked up some picture Bible uh, and a picture dictionary. And um, just wait, I'm, a, I'm having a vertical thing. Hold on. I apologize. No, take oh, your time. Take your time, Grace. That's awful. Uh, I sometimes yeah, I've been having health too. problems. Okay. Okay. There we go. Sorry about that. Um, I hope you can cut that out. In the... Yeah, we can. Sure, yeah, we can. Okay. We'll make a note. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, let me just. Yeah, I've had some health issues. So hold on. Mm. Yes, it was very oppressive for me. And it wasn't until I went into seminary in my 20s, where it was kind of a life changing experience for me uh, when I Mm. entered seminary, because at that time, it turned everything upside down, my whole world was turned upside down. Mm. I had to reinterpret scripture, I had to make sense of scripture, because it never made sense to me in my early childhood and in my teens because it was so oppressive it was a book of rules and i was scared to death about who god was um so it was never this loving image i had the picture bible um book that my dad had bought and i went through it many times and so much of it was about war and killing so it was very very difficult for me um reading scripture so now You know, as I said about my book, Hope and Disarray, I begin with scripture. And, you know, I'm trying to read scripture so it will be liberating because that Mm -hmm. is the message of Christ. Christ came came to set the the prisoners free, you know, to feed the, the poor, to feed the hungry and to be with the poor and to liberate us. So that is the Christian message. That is the good news. And so if these scriptural passages can't share the good news, I think we have to reread them and reinterpret them for our context and our time. Mm. 
Grace, um, when you articulated earlier that um, uh, biography is theology and theology biography, um, it, it, it's it's like you're uh, uh, unpicking the DNA of our podcast. It's why we answer, uh, like ask the questions um, uh, that we ask. It, it's, it's why we allow space for the answers. Um, it, it's why we can have such a diversity of, of people because we're honestly um, seeking to, to listen to um, people's own experience. I'm so aware that um, uh, of your 20 plus books now, um, so many of them, particularly um, your later work, um, is asking questions around um, hermeneutics and uh, the particular framing that we do theology in. We always um, ask the question, like, what what personal gifts out of one's own lived experience um, do you think is a gift for others who haven't shared that experience? Um, uh, what hermeneutics are possible in your life that um, you're aware have uh, become a gift for other people. Um, I think you of all people m- might have that answer more on the surface than most and have already pointed at that with a lot of your answers. But for those who are looking to engage the scriptures in ways that heal instead of harm, and, and so many have shared in that experience of harm that you articulated or uh, uh, oppressive reality, um, w- w- what, um, what invitation do you have for others to read in ways that do turn our world upside down? Yeah. Um, My other book that you mentioned, The Intersection of Theology, that I co-wrote with Susan Shaw, Mm -hmm. um, we're looking at um, the world and scripture um, through the lens of intersectionality, that there are multiple identities. So, you know, I'm not just a woman. I'm also an immigrant. I'm Korean-American, middle class. Um, age educated, able, um, heterosexual. There, there are these multiple identities, and every one of us here, it's we're not just one identity. We have multiple identities, and all these multiple identities help us to read scripture, help us to understand God, and help us to understand the context that we find ourselves in. Because it's a special lens that helps us. And, and when we're doing intersectional um, theology, that itself is also leading to social justice. The lens that we use to reread scripture so that it's liberative will then work for justice. We don't just end there. We went, then want to turn that into some action, some law changes, some policy changes, some changes in our church doctrine, some changes in how we practice and how we worship in our churches. Because some of these things in our churches are so oppressive. The male dominant language that we continue to use in scripture, like when we talk about God, is God really male? (laughs) Like with the male genitalia? I don't think so, right? But we continue to believe that. And, you know, our art for the last 2,000 years have been this white male God up in the cloud or up on a throne. You know, we, so there's so many ways we need to reinterpret scripture. So this intersectional lens, this multi-hermeneutics and understanding that things can be both and, mm. you know, I think, I think in the Western world, 
And that would, I would probably include Australia, but may not, I'm not too sure. Cause you're kind of South Asia, kind of Pacific. Yes, here the colonial in ways America, in which uh, Western, um, that term <laughs> names are out like, uh, Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, all those sins we share in. Okay. So in, you know, in this Western world, we have this dualism and dualistic way of thinking has been really bad, I think, for Christianity as a whole, yes. because it separates everything into two sides. So heaven and earth, um, man and woman, spirit and wisdom. So, you know, one is good and one is bad. So male and female. So women were considered bad. But we got to move away from this dualistic thinking. And that's what intersectional theology wants to do and promote a both and way of thinking. And that helps us to understand that, you know, heaven can be here on earth. You know, that helps us to understand people of different gender identity, sexuality. And it, it just helps us to embrace everybody. And it recognizes that theology is not so clear cut. As I said earlier in the interview in this podcast, you know, God is this infinite being. We're finite. It, theology is messy. And in our messiness, we still, we don't want to give up. Uh, but we still want to strive to understand God. We want to understand what God has called us to do. And we are to build the kingdom of God here on earth. So that is part of our social justice work, that it's not the split heaven and earth, but that we want to build heaven here on earth. We want to bring peace and justice. We want to instill hope in one another. We want to eliminate all this isms that we face on a daily basis that is killing people, you know, literally killing people. So, you know, that is, I think, the way we want to read scripture, we want to move away from these oppressive ways of reading scripture, or even concentrating on those, you know, sometimes people just concentrate on these passages of war. I don't know why, but it, you know, it may serve those in power. And then we have to question that. But if it does not promote justice, if it does not help build peace and love and hope, then we need to reread scripture. And we also have to come to understand that scripture was written by mostly men. And so, and their way of understanding God's word. So there's so many of these levels and, you know, scripture, we don't have any of the original text. You know, we only have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. We don't know which copy it is anymore. We try to get to the original. The oldest copy is the more correct because we know, you know, scribes, when you're copying, you know, there was no copy machine or fax machine. They make mistakes all the time. People have been sitting there for hours, people falling asleep, people are drowsy. They make mistakes as they're copying. And so we don't have anything original. So we have to keep all those in mind and trying to understand what is the good news. And if we can't find the good news, we should maybe move on or don't get fixated <laughs> on these passages because 
those in power. And I think white nationalism here in the U.S., white Christian nationalism, Mm. focus on these obscure passages to legitimize their own crazy actions that we've seen lately. Um, And it's not just the last four years. It was beyond that, too. I was loving up in Canada, and I was like, oh, my goodness, how can this be happening? And then I live here in the U.S., and it's happening right before my eyes. Mm. So it's nothing new. It's been around for a long time. And I think sometimes those voices are louder. So we need our voices to kind of drain out those voices. So podcasts like yours are very good in that it helps to drown out those terrible uh, voices out there that kind of talk in a way that they're Christian and, and, and Christian Christianity. But I always say you have to be careful when you see the cross covered with an American flag, because mm-hmm. to me, that's not Christianity. It's, I kind of came up with this and I'm running with it. It's Americanity. And I said this to Tripp a few years ago <laughs> on his podcast and he loved it. So I thought I'm going to keep using it. I've used it before Tripp's podcast, but anyway, I don't think it's Christianity. This Christian nationalism is very dangerous. And mm. I think we should just, label it as Americanity or something else, because people get confused when you put Christianity into some word or Christian into some word, and then everybody thinks it's some Christian thing. But when it does not share hope and love and peace, it's not Christianity at all. Mm. That's so good. That's so good. You got me wanting to go in two different directions here, but I want to start off just with the fact that you started off even talking about intersectionality and just how important that is. And I I think about even for my own life, how important it has been for me to just to have an honest self-examination of the complex ways that I move in the world, right? Um, That both things can be true, that I can, in fact, not can, have had a police point a gun at my head, right, as a young Black man. And also I can walk into a room and have, because of the letters behind my name, have a lot of respects, right? That, that probably sometimes undeserved, right? Both of those things are true. Um, and certainly just the way that women of color in particular have helped to just help us think through the multi-dimensional realities that we inhabit and how we inter move in the world, right? I think is really important. So I think that reading scripture in those kind of nuanced ways are really liberative, right? Um, And it does help us um, when both, um, when we can see the nuances of how we live, hopefully can help us see the complexities of other people's stories as well, right? Um, And engage them in that kind of way. So yeah, I think that that's really powerful um, when we're approaching scripture and um, hoping for yeah, not just a dualistic way of kind of framing the worlds as black and white, but there's just so much more texture to what's going yeah, on before both us. and yeah. and. And in Asia, that's just how we think too, both and mm. both and rather than, you know, just one or the other, the dualistic. Mm-hmm. And I think that may actually help us come up, overcome some of this us and them issue and this individualistic issue of individualism here in the U.S. I think if we can think more in both and and understanding community is important, then, you know, when we see, you know, I'm using Asian hate because the videos that are shared on social media and by police, you know, people, 
you know, Asian older, particularly older um, Asian Americans or Asian American women are the ones that are targeted. You know, they're beaten up in the middle of the street. There's pedestrians walking and there's people standing and nobody stops this. Mm. You know, people are shoved and stomped on and beaten up and people are just walking by. You know, I just think of the Good Samaritan story and how, you know, the priest and the Levite just walked by and it was a Samaritan that stopped and helped. And so I think if we understand community as being important and it's not just us and them, it's kind of a we understanding, Mm. then we can help one another. You know, I think... Um, being in solidarity with people of color is important. We need, uh, you know, when we're fighting this Asian hate here in the U.S., we need African Americans, we need Hispanics, mm-hmm. Latinx, we need um, Native Americans, we need white people to be in solidarity with us to fight these crimes. You know, people are being murdered on the street. And, you know, March 16, when eight people died, you know, that was targeted hate crime. And so, you know, we need to prevent these things from happening. You know, Stop AAPI Hate Organization um, formed last March because of the pandemic and the increase of this Asian American hate. Mm -hmm. And I think till now, so over a year, they've uh, recorded or people have reported over 4,000 hate crimes. And we know many Asian Americans live with this honor shame system. So many of us are very shameful to even report any kind of hate crime that has been committed to us, either verbal or physical or any murders. So we know that the numbers are even higher than that. So it is a terrible thing that's happening here in the US. And we are targeted, but not just Asian Americans. Uh, People of color are targeted, trans people, the uh, queer community, women are targeted. So we need to stop all this. We need to work for justice. And so we need to read scripture so that it's liberative and it will help us and strengthen us to work for justice. You know, sometimes I get scared and I've written about being scared of speaking up or doing something for justice. And that's when, you know, really we need, you know, we need courage, but I think that courage comes from the spirit of God, the spirit that dwells in all people, as Joel um, 2.28 has told us, that we need the spirit to help us because we can't do it ourselves. You know, I'm, I'm a very weak woman, and, you know, the last eight months or so, I'm dealing with um, health problems. So, you know, we can't do it alone. We need the the help of the spirit, the spirit that dwells in in us to help us and to fill us and give us the courage and give us the hope to do stuff to change this world. Grace, we're, we're so appreciative of your time and I'm aware of the time. Um, and uh, you, you've hinted at other things that we would love to talk about in your new book in the future. Um, I know you've written a number of books uh, when it comes to the Holy Spirit and um, uh, particularly the way that uh, you engage uh, not just Asian but uh, an Asian American um, uh, theology when it comes to those questions and how it breaks down that dualism. Um, I wanted to ask, but we are out of time, but just to hint for future conversations, um, um, Ngozi uh, Gola, who um, is a, a food activist in Cape Town and a guerrilla gardener and organic theologian with the warehouse um, community there, 
uh, we recently had him as a guest in uh, one of our inverse spaces, Liberating Sunday School, and he talked about um, uh, once we have food in our belly and a roof of, over our head, then we can talk about the luxuries of em embracing hopelessness. But until then, hope is the only reason we get up in the morning. Um, and I hold that intention with, um, I, I had the honour of in 2004, I'm um, speaking on a panel with Joanna Macy, um, the Buddhist scholar, systems theorist and eco-philosopher. And we were asked about hope and she said, I have no hope. Um, uh, hope um, is, I, I have Dharma, um, uh, but hope uh, is actually an attachment that I'm trying to lose. And I would have loved to have asked you about that. And Joanna has recently moved. She's got a new book, Active Hope. Um, but I would have loved to ask you about that as well. All that to say, I think we have some other conversations to have. We're so yes. thankful for your time. And um, <laughs> Thank we will you let so you go. Much. Yeah. But but let's do that in the future. That would be a lot yes. of fun. Uh -huh. Thank you so much for inviting me on Inverse Podcast. It's so wonderful to see all the other people here, all the other participants. I hope you have, uh, continue to have good conversation because I've just opened it up and I just hope that you have uh, continuous good conversation and that maybe you'll read one of my books and I look forward to coming back to your podcast. Thank you so much for all Thanks, the work Kat. that you do. I know both of you are so busy. So thank you so much for this time. Thank you. Excellent. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.